Hi, everyone. Uh, thanks very much for coming um, and for giving up the seat next to you. Uh, I'm Abby from AWS. I'm here with Prakash from Nextdoor. Um, I'm going to talk really briefly at the beginning, and then I'm going to turn over to the part that I actually want to listen to, which is Prakash and not me, because um, they do some really cool stuff. So we will truck on really quickly through the intro part of this, and then we will turn it over to Prakash. Um, so for those of you that aren't sure what session that you're in, um, we're working on building effective Docker images. So effective to me means uh, as small as possible while still being easy to work with. So, and I always have someone that comes up to, after the, to me afterwards, it's like, well, I can do this in six megabytes. Um, and you can, but think about how much time you spent making your six megabyte handcrafted artisan image uh, that you could have spent maybe doing something else. So effective, uh, what's the happy median between uh, as small and as minimal as possible, but also that you could work with effectively so that it has maybe some of the packages that you need, you were able to build on top of it. So you can work with it, but also you can deploy it faster. Um, so we're going to go back to basics really quickly before we jump on to the cool stuff. Um, so what are container layer? So we're in Docker 101 right now. So they're a stack. So you start, you have your read-only base layers, and that's what you start with. So that's the base image that you pull. So for a lot of people, that's Ubuntu, or that's CentOS, or that's Alpine. Uh, that's the, the base-only images that you start with. So read-only, you can't do anything to them. You can't really control their size, uh, unless you do something else, which we'll talk about later. Uh, and on top of that, you get your really thin read-write layer. So anything you do during the container is added here. So uh, any data that you pull, anything that you do, any packages that you install, those all go to that really thin read-write layer on top of your read-only base layer. So why do you care about how many layers you have in the first place? So small caveat that Docker uh, 1.1 has made this a little bit better. But so different operations in Docker add layers to your to your final image size. And how many layers you have determines how large your container is. I mean, also what's in those layers. but the more layers you have in general, the larger that your image is going to be. Uh, the larger that your image is, the longer it takes to push and pull from a registry, which is your deployment, right? So if it takes me, if I have a one gigabyte image, uh, if I maybe push that once a week, so say that I had a monolith still, um, if I push that once, I'm like, okay, well, it's kind of slow. But if I have microservices, if I have several services and they all have a over one gig image, uh, think about how long my deploys are. So think about how long it's now taking me to do my continuous integration, my continuous deployment. So it takes longer to deploy, uh, it takes up more space in my registry, it takes up more disk space, uh, but also it means a smaller attack surface. So the smaller that my image is, the less packages that I have in there that people can exploit. So uh, not only is it about size, but it's about safety. So how can I reduce the number of layers that I have? So a couple of really basic things that you can use uh, sharing is caring, so it's just like preschool class, right? I share my blocks with everybody else. Uh, you, you can use shared base images wherever possible. So if I have several services, if they're all Node.js ones, maybe I make my own custom base image and I can share that. So all their common packages, I'm only really pulling once. So for every new instance in my cluster, I pull that image once, uh, and then all of the, the containers built on top of it can share that. I can also limit the data that's written to my container layer. So we'll look at some examples later, but if I pull a package, if I use that package and then remove it in the same layer, I have not committed anything to the final size of my container. 
The same goes if you're downloading a data set. So a lot of people in development environments, they'll download, they'll download a data set to populate something with, right? If you download that file, populate your data, then maybe remove the zipped version that you downloaded. So if I download like a big tar file, unzip it, use the contents, and then remove that zipped version because it's just committing final size to my image, uh, I can chain my run statements. So we don't look into these as closely here because we're going to talk to Prakash instead, but um, you can chain these together. So every time you call run, you're adding a new layer. So if I add all of my run commands together, so for example, someone might use apt-get install some packages, uh, I can chain all those together. So I can maybe do my updates, I can do my install, and then I can do my cleanup, and I can do that all in one statement so that it both uses it, installs the packages, cleans up the mess after those packages, but I've all made that in one layer. And finally, I can prevent cache misses at build for as long as possible. So Docker has some really interesting caching behavior. So I can use that cache as long as possible so that I can, I can make my image use that very aggressively. Uh, so a little bit more of the, the basics. So if you're here, uh, it's container day. So we'll get started with this really early. So a Docker file is a series of instructions for building the image. So it's in the, it's in the format instruction and then command. So from x, run x, add this file. Uh, so cache rules everything around me, right? So we talked about being able to use the, the Docker cache really aggressively. So how does the Docker cache work? There's actually probably more than I can cover in just one session on Docker cache, but in general, I want to use it as long as possible. So that means that the order of my statements really matters. So where I run things, if I, if I have something that never changes, once I've broken the cache, it's over. So it's like a fun game, right? So I use the cache as long as possible, because once I've broken it, I build everything again on top of that. I'm not reusing any of my layers once I've broken the cache. So in general, I can push it off as long as possible. There are some exceptions to this. So for example, uh, pulling from a git registry, uh, the run command is never going to change, but I actually do want to break the cache every time because although the instruction is exactly the same, I still need to pull that every single time. So there are, there are exceptions to this rule, like there are any rules, uh, but in general, let's use the cache as long as possible. So reuse as many of those layers and then only build exactly what's changed. So let's look at some examples and how we can do this. So we'll start with the Docker file. And this is fine, by the way. This actually would totally build. Um, I tried it myself. Um, this is fine. It's not great, but it's fine. So I'm pulling an operating system that I was comfortable with when I wrote this. Uh, I put my email on it. This is my real email, by the way. So if you have any questions about this, you're welcome to use it. Uh, I installed some packages. I did some updates. I copied some code over. I changed my directory. I installed some more requirements. This is a Python app because this is Amazon. Um, and I ran my app. So this is fine. There's nothing wrong with it, except that it is kind of slow in it took up a lot of my space. So how can I make this better? A couple things that we can look at. And the first step really is starting from the beginning, so choosing my right base. So I used Ubuntu. I used Latest. I didn't have to do that, though. So there are base images that are more specific for the language that I'm using, right? So in this case, I'm using, so Alpine is a more minimal way, a more minimal base image. And I'm using one that's specifically for Python. So it has some packages that I need. And you can see that just by choosing a different base, I've cut some space off. So I went from 450-ish megs to 86-ish megs. So a pretty significant jump uh, just by choosing a different base image. And what would be different 
what's also slightly better is that I could have chosen a different distro. So maybe I could have gone from Ubuntu to the Debian image, which was just a little bit smaller. So I can get big jumps and, or medium-sized jumps just by changing the image that my container is built off of, which isn't really changing anything else. I'm not changing my actual process. I may be changing my package manager and my base. So when do I want a full base OS, though? So we just used an Alpine example. Um, and I guess I just did a bad Ubuntu example. So I do actually really like Ubuntu, and I like a full operating system. So why would I, why would I need this? So in a talk on minimal images, why do I care if I ever have a full operating system? Uh, security. So <laughs> there's also some packages that maybe I need that maybe I don't have on a more minimal one. Uh, same thing as compliance. So not everyone works at a startup. Some of us work at very large enterprises. Uh, and sometimes you can't use the really cool minimal image that your friend told you about on Hacker News. Uh, sometimes that doesn't work if you work for a big enterprise. And then the last one is ease of development. So we'll look at, well, we'll look at some of the trade-offs. But if I'm using a more minimal one, maybe it doesn't have a package manager. Maybe it doesn't have, so like Ruby's a good example. Maybe it doesn't have all the gems that I need because so I, I'm basically installing not only the packages that I need, but I'm then sorting through a bunch of errors on how can I get, how can I get all the supporting gems, all the supporting packages that I need to run my application. So we'll look at our original image. Um, this is still fine. Uh, how could I have made this better, right? So I'm installing, I'm doing my base. I'm installing some packages on top of that. Uh, I can make some simple changes, though. So I changed my base. I went back to that Python Alpine version. And you'll notice that a couple of things disappeared. So my whole, my, my apt get instructions for installing those packages, those are gone now. And the only ones that I kept are in my, my pip install, so my requirements.txt file. So since I'm using an image that was designed for the language that I'm using, I can cut out some of the setup steps that I needed to run my image. Uh, so fewer cache invalidations means smaller images. So I can change the order that I'm calling these statements so that I can use the cache a little bit more effectively. So I'm copying over my requirements.txt file. So I'm only breaking the cache if the contents of that file has changed. So if it hasn't changed, I can just keep on going, reusing my same cache layers. So let's recap. So layers, file system differences. They add up really quickly, and then you have big consequences. And by big consequences, I mean big build times. It's a little bit slower. It takes longer for everything to go out. And in the wonderful world of continuous deployment, uh, I'd like to keep things fast. So I'm going to turn things over now. So we're going to go to Prakash from next door. Uh, if you have questions, uh, we'll take questions at the end. And then we'll probably end a couple minutes early because people have to make it all the way to their next session. So if you have questions, we'll take questions at the end of Prakash's section. But we'll also stand up here for a couple minutes afterwards so that we don't prevent people from, from making it to their, to their next one if they need some time. So without further ado, here's Prakash. All right, thank you, Abby. Um, I'm Prakash, I'm the Chief Architect and Co-Founder of Nextdoor. Uh, quick show of hands, how many people actually know what Nextdoor is? Okay, that's good, but not great. <laughs> so maybe let's start by talking about what we do. Um, Nextdoor is a social network for the neighborhood. And so when you think back to the time before the contemporary social networks like Facebook, Twitter, um, the original social network was the neighborhood. Like in real life, people would go talk to their neighbors. Imagine that, right? And so what we're trying to do is bring back a sense of community to the neighborhood through the use of a modern mechanism like this app. And it's in use now by over 80% of the neighborhoods in the United States. Um, this includes use cases like finding lost pets, selling a used couch, reporting crime and safety issues. So if you haven't checked it out, 
check it out. We have apps and we have a website. So that's Nextdoor. Now, we actually started Nextdoor, like a lot of probably different entrepreneurs started their companies, with a giant monolithic application. And the giant monolith was a Django-based Python application. It's got a backend that's a PostgreSQL database. We didn't even have a cache. The whole thing ran on one machine. We would go into that machine and we would git pull, and that, that was basically the build and deploy process. Um, that probably sounds familiar to folks. But over time, that obviously doesn't scale. And so we started to break up and decompose the monolith into a series of backend services that are written in Go. Ends up we chose Go because, number one, it's a very, very compact and terse language. Kind of felt like that's where uh, the puck was going, so to speak. And so we were skating towards where the puck was going. Uh, and we've been really happy with this. We've, we've been using Go for about four years. Um, the really nice thing about building in Go, really, though, is it's not a dynamic environment. It's, you, you build a, a static binary, and you ship the binary. So you kind of get back into the days of C++ development, those kinds of things, where your asset that you're shipping around is just a single binary. So today, I think we're going to spend more time talking about how we build and deploy our Python application, which is in a dynamic environment. It's got a bunch of dependencies, and it plays really well into some of the things that Abby was talking about. So again, in a dynamic environment, you've got a lot of dependencies. It starts with your base operating system. You've got a bunch of different packages on that base operating system, uh, including things like OpenSSL, for us, libpq, which allows us to communicate with Postgres, uh, and a bunch of other things, the Datadog agent, other kinds of tools that we use that we kind of think of as a systems layer. Then, of course, we have our Python runtime environment. Um, how many folks use Python in production? OK. So in Python, obviously, there's a bunch of different packages that you want to install to get your app up and running. Um, and it's really convenient, but with a large app like ours, we end up proliferating quite a few different dependencies. We use a lot of different open source software. And so in here are some examples. Of course, there's Django. Um, we have a SendGrid client. We use Bodo. So a bunch of these different areas. And for us, this is probably the biggest amount of bulk in terms of our application. Um, this is where most of the meat is. And then, of course, there's our source code. And in our source code, that includes the Python source, it includes some of our static assets like images, CSS, JavaScript. And so this is kind of the composition of the app overall. And as you kind of think about it with an eye towards what's changing and what's introducing friction in terms of rebuilding these environments, we kind of think about it in this way. We very, very rarely change our base OS or any of those low-level system dependencies probably do it on the order of quarterly. And we probably only change the, the base OS version itself, maybe annually, if that. In the middle, we have all of those Python dependencies. Now, those change a little bit more frequently, either for security reasons or because we're upgrading to some new uh, version of a library or because we're introducing a new feature, which introduces a new dependency. And so there's a little bit more churn in that part of the system. And then, of course, on the application code, we're changing that all the time, literally dozens of times a day. And so this is kind of a, a framework for us to think about how we want to optimize our build and deployment process. And probably like many of you, when we started the company, we were on a pretty regular sort of release cadence. We weren't in continuous deployment. We would build and deploy packages starting once a week, and then we did that daily. 
and it really was sort of a, a friction-filled process as the company started to scale because we needed to converge all of our developers on this kind of arduous process of building and deploying and verifying their changes. And so we knew we needed to move quicker. We needed to move more quickly towards something that more strongly resembled continuous deployment. And so in the non-continuous deployment world and in the non-Docker world, your building blocks are really EC2 images and EC2 instances. And so that uh, icon on the left is, I think, the official AMI icon. Is that right? Yeah. So many icons, looks, so many things. Looks um, right. But really, when you think about optimizing a process in which you're deploying an application to a single EC2, EC2 host, and it's kind of single purpose in that way, really your building block is the AMI. That's where you're spending a lot of time trying to optimize. You probably heard the term baking AMIs. Well, we used to do that, right? We used to take all of these different dependencies and try and cook as many of them into the base AMI as possible so that at deployment time, we were able to boot up our, our instances pretty quickly. We're in an auto-scaling environment. It's really important that instances come up when we need them and that we don't need to wait around for 30 minutes for us to install apt packages and Python packages and all that kind of stuff. As you move to a world where you're containerized and now you've got a fleet of EC2 instances that are housing multiple containers, the focus on the AMI kind of drifts a little bit. You can use a very basic AMI to run your EC2 hosts, and you can move a lot of the package management up into the container. And so the container image ends up becoming uh, a little bit more of what Abby described, which is these layers uh, atop a base OS. So let's talk about the world before we move to Docker. For us, it was really painful. The builds took like 20 minutes. Uh, 20 minutes to build a Python application is no good, right? And these were some of the steps. First off, you've got to build in a hermetic environment, so you've got to do some chirruting nonsense to kind of get, make sure that you don't interfere with someone else's build. Um, then you go in, you install all these apt packages, and um, then you go through and do all of your pip packages, and uh, you get clone some stuff out, and before you know it, 20 minutes have passed, and you've got a little, uh, a little package that you're ready to install. In our case, we were using the Debian packaging system. Um, for any of you who have not used Debian packaging, don't use it. It's really, really complicated and like obtuse and really hard to work with. And we had like one guy in the entire organization who knew how that stuff worked because it was totally crazy. So anyway, this is what we were doing. We we're creating these Debian packages, right? Good times, fun. And before Docker, it would take us sometimes over 30 minutes to actually get the application out into production. Why is that? Well, you get your five minutes of boot time for an EC2 instance. Maybe it's gotten a little bit faster since then. Um, but, you know, let's call it five times to just boot the instance. Then we were using Puppet. Probably a lot of you are familiar with Puppet and Chef as configuration systems. Um, we were using Puppet, and Puppet's responsibility was to go in and bootstrap the machine and get all the system packages on there and get all the configuration on there. So that took about 15 minutes. And then we get to go deliver that Debian package. And unpacking that thing takes like 10 minutes because it goes through its tree of dependencies and whatnot. So 30 minutes later, we're in production. So in total, every time we wanted to do a release, it would take us like an hour, an hour plus, right? And if something went wrong, well, forget about it. You got to go all the way back to the beginning and do the whole thing over again, right? So that was all bad, really, really bad. Um, but 
not terrible in a world where you're not releasing that frequently, right? It's not unreasonable to, be, to start in a place where you're not releasing that frequently and you want to do, do things in a completely automated and repeatable way. So now let's talk about the migration to Docker. And this was something that we knew we wanted to do for a long time, and it was motivated by this desire to go faster, this desire for us to get more releases out into production more quickly to deliver features to our users. And so as we think about that same framework that we talked about earlier of the different components in the system, that's kind of how we modeled the layers. It's not exactly one-to-one, -one, but abstractly, let's think about it as one-to-one, -one, where we've got system packages, we've got Python packages, and then we have our own application source. And it's all layered on top of a base operating system. For us, it all starts with that base OS. And Abby had mentioned using a smaller uh, distribution, trying to make the baseline of this really, really small. For us, just wading into this, and we're new to this, we've only been doing this probably for a year or so, um, we actually wanted, it, we wanted to build from a place of familiarity. We didn't want to introduce too many new things in this transition from the old world to the new world. And so we use Ubuntu. We have a particular flavor of it that we use. It's really old. We, we actually do use Precise, so um, that's really bad, but we're, we're, there, there's some good reasons for that. Um, but we do use Precise. And then on top of that, we actually go in and install all of our apt packages. This is kind of step one, right? And we have a script that articulates all of our system dependencies. And if these don't change, then this layer never gets rebuilt, right? Caching is really, really important. And because this is only changing on the order of quarterly or so, then that's the frequency of change of this layer. And so we don't actually pay much of a penalty repeatedly for building this. And I think the size of this layer ends up being in the hundreds of megs or so. So it's still a little large, and we'll probably shrink that down as we start to look into alternate base images. But for us, the familiarity of what's on the host was really important, and to not introduce too much change. Then, of course, we layer in everything in our Python virtual environment. And so in the virtual environment, things are changing a little bit more frequently. We're talking about maybe a change every couple of weeks or so. It's not that, not that crazy. Uh, and you can see here, we actually use a package manager called Conda. I don't know if folks are familiar with Conda, but it allows you to manage both your Python dependencies and your system dependencies kind of in one place. So it's, it's sort of a nice, nice thing. We've got our requirements.txt. We've got our YAML files. Um, if any of these change, obviously, we've got to blow up this layer of the cache. We've got to start over again. But in most cases, not a lot is changing in here either. And so we can run our little script. Everything's happy. And then we get to the app source itself. And now this is changing all the time, literally all the time. We're changing it by the minute even in some cases. Maybe not the minute, but multiple times an hour. Um, and this is really all about our source code. It's about Python source code. It's about static assets. We use Thrift as an IDL. It's about the interfaces between our clients and our servers. And so when any of these things change, which is all the time, this basically changes. By using Docker layer caching, we were able to drop the average build times from 20 minutes to build everything down to about two minutes. Because again, in most cases, all we're ever changing is our source code. 
doesn't take very long to do a git pull and to check that stuff out and to compile some CSS or JavaScript. Not, not, that, not that big a deal. And we think we can go even faster than this. So going from 20 minutes to two minutes was a huge win. It improved our velocity on the build and cycle times to the point where we can now do even more upstream of our deployments. When you think about continuous integration and being able to run tests and to be able to test on every commit, this actually makes a big difference in being able to do some of that because you're able to drop a container into a testing cluster, run those tests, and you can do that on every commit and you can give developers feedback more quickly. So really, really important. And then as we think about the deployment side of things, even more wins. So in the old world, where we were actually going through and doing the whole process, booting an EC2 host, configuring it with Puppet, running all of those installation scripts, dropping our crazy-ass Debian package <laughs> that we didn't know how to build um, onto these hosts, uh, instead, all we're doing now is pulling from the Docker registry, dropping that image onto some pre-booted hosts into a fleet of EC2 containers inside of ECS. We happen to use ECS, but if you're using something else like Kubernetes or uh, Mesos or whatever, same general kind of stuff. And so for us, that actually dropped our deployment times to about five minutes. There's more in the deployment. We actually drop the containers onto the host. We transition traffic through load balancers. So you see a little bit of that here. Um, but the time, the, just the raw time to ship something has gone down significantly. Now that being said, our image sizes are still pretty big. When you sum up everything, including that base OS, that chunky layer of Python dependencies in the middle, and then of course our, our source code, um, we're probably north of a gig, right? We're, 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 we're pretty big. And we wanna get that down even more. But in comparison, we didn't talk about this in the presentation, but in the Go world, where all we're shipping is a binary, it's like lightning fast. Lightning fast. We build the, we build the binary, we stick it into a layer, nothing else changes because there's no other dependencies that need to be shipped. And so that whole process is lightning fast. Um, and we deploy those apps basically all the time. Um, so this is basically a look at how our new system works. So quick summary, Docker layers, good. Very, very good. Um, try and find as minimal a shared base OS as possible. We haven't yet found ours, but I suspect we will find it soon. Um, I think it's important for us to kind of now take this baseline and optimize it even further now that it's up and running and it's stable. But in transition, I wouldn't rush to that, right? If you're transitioning from a place where you're already building on EC2 hosts and you're trying to move over to Docker, um, try and build try and make that transition as gradually as possible. Don't introduce more stress than you already have, right? I think all of us have stress in our production environment. So um, smaller layers are better and cache everything that you can. As much caching as you can do, the better. So that's all I got. You got more? Uh, no. So what we'll do now is, so I, I feel like a little note first. So if, I think that's really cool because that's, it's really a it's a very approachable way that people are doing it in production, right? That you started with something that was really familiar, and then you got to something that was 
as familiar as it could be while getting all the benefits of the new thing. And it's very much like the opposite of premature optimization. It's like we did what we wanted to get something that was a lot better. And then if we waited for a little while, now we'll keep optimizing. Now, now sure. we like it and we're comfortable with it. So let's just keep optimizing in little chunks after that. So we're done with the, with the slide part of our content. So we've left a big chunk of time for, for questions. So I know that I'm excited that Prakash is here because it's a good opportunity to ask questions about someone that's doing this in, in, like in real life production that's doing it right now. So they're using all the time. So a great time to ask questions of Prakash. Um, so we'll hang out here for a couple minutes and answer questions out loud. Um, and then we'll try to leave you guys with a couple minutes at the end to head to your next session, because I know everyone needs a little bit of extra reinvent travel time to get literally anywhere. <laughs> I know that like I have a, seven hotels or something. I know that I have a half an hour to get from here to the Venetian at 2:30, and I'm not sure it's physically possible. So unless I can expense some sort of teleporter, I'm not really sure how I'll do it. Um, so does anyone have any questions for Prakash or I about uh, what we're building with Docker Layers? And some people are sneaking out. Yes. Yep. Yeah, so with the, with the, with the layers, so <laughs> it's going to be a mass exodus, so it will be private question time. Um, with the layers, so every time you call run, basically you're adding a new layer, and there are some commands that don't do that, and Docker 1.10 has made that a little bit better, but in general, when I'm calling run, I'm adding a new layer, and almost always because the result of that run command is probably, ch is probably changing. So if I chain them, you see that in... I don't have a good example up, but how I would have used to do things, right, when I, I did the same thing that Nextdoor did, and I moved over from like a static, big, giant monolith to my microservices, and I did exactly the same thing. And I remember writing it, and I was like, okay, apt-get update, apt-get install. And I wrote myself a really nice comment on the top of every line, and I was like, I am God's gift to developers. And look at all the comments I've written. This is so organized. This is beautiful. And then I was like, well, wait, this is really slow. So when you chain them, you can do everything in the same layer. So if I do, you don't, and you don't always have to do apt-get update, but for example, if you're doing it. So I do apt-get update and, and, and then apt-get install. And then a lot of package managers will now clean up after you, but if for, you might still need to do that. Then you can remove the packages in the same line. So then I end up with one giant, slightly messier looking line where I've updated and then installed my package. So I've done not, I'm not committing then two layers, I'm committing one. And then the same works if you're then, if you're using something. So for example, with, with getting a file, if I curl a big file and then use it to install something, I can remove the zipped version. So if I chain them all together, so it's not doing run and run, it's run and the rest of the command. So you're basically using, you're opening one run statement for the whole command with whatever you were doing. So all the different pieces. Did putting it in a shell script do the same? Like, is that why you guys, like you were like run and then get a shell command? Yeah. And that, that, that the yeah, for us, we wanted to articulate it in a way that kind of mapped to the division of responsibilities in some sense also. So, yeah. Cool. Thank you. Yeah. Yes. Huzzah. <laughs> <laughs>
So I think the, well, the, the general answer is, is that it, and I, I feel like I say this at least 18 times a day, and then everyone will tweet me angrily afterwards and being like, she always says it's dependent on your use case, but <laughs> it always is. That's what um, I always say, too. <laughs> I, always. Yeah. But the, where I used a shared base image before is that it didn't mean that I was, this is a very like streamlined example for PowerPoint purposes, but in real life, what it, it mostly looked like was that I had my shared base image, but it did not mean that I was not then installing one package on top of that that I only needed for one, if it was like a especially, especially space inefficient one. So I tend to use the base image. So say I have 10 Node.js services, and they all have like six packages that they all need. And you can see that Nextdoor is also using a custom base that I install a bunch of the packages that I need. And then maybe I'm still installing some other ones in my setup. But I, what I found was that by having that, what my consequence was for having inefficient containers was that at some point, I also used ECS, uh, I had no disk space. And I was on call for that. And that was an exciting night for me when I realized that I had literally no disk space. And Docker, I would say, behaves very poorly with no disk space. So what I found was that when I, <laughs> Prakash is laughing at me because it's, it was like a, the understatement of the century. Yeah, yeah. It would like it surfaces as like a bunch of kernel errors. And I was like, what the hell is going on? Um, so it, my goal was to not run out of disk space also on the clusters itself. So I found that I gained more from having a shared base image that I wasn't pulling many separate base images. I gained more from that quality of life wise. Uh, and that in some cases, I then still did have an extra step installing those two packages later if I needed something extra that I didn't have in my base. But it took up much less space out of my cluster pool because I, what I really didn't want was the disk space problem. And when they all had their own base, I did run out of space, which is I that think there's also there's, there's a broader kind of architectural way to think about it, which is how do you, in a polyglot type of environment like ours, where we've got some Go services and we've got some Python services. We actually run those all on one giant fleet of EC, ECS hosts. The other way that we could have done this is we could have said, OK, well, there's like the Python ECS cluster, and you push some of the commonality as much as possible into the kind of host layer, and you, you move some of the like differences up. And again, it depends, I think, a lot on the rate of change, right? That's when you come back to first principles about caching and optimizations and things, um, there's always a trade-off between some of that complexity and where you push that complexity and some of the operability of things. So I think there is a, a, a different way of thinking about it also that, um, you know, is for us, for example, to, to expound on the disk space issue, right? We have these giant machines and we run a bunch of, we pack a bunch of different containers into those machines. Um, you know, that's one way to do it. Another way to do it is to run like little machines and run little workloads on those little machines and things. And so I really do think it depends on your use case and, and kind of where you're constrained. Um, I think part of it too is that like, so we just said that there's always trade-offs, right? So your trade-off, my, my trade-off was that I didn't like debugging kernel errors, which I thought was like a quality of life situation. But, <laughs> um, but because people are running mixed workloads now, so I'm running some Python containers, some Go containers, some Node.js containers, and all the configuration now, at least for me, is boxed at the container layer, I do end up 
in some cases having to do a little bit of extra work that is not in my utopian Docker files for this presentation, I do end up maybe doing a little bit of configuration work. But in general, I've saved myself a ton of space by moving out a chunk of that to the, to the base image. Mm -hmm. So still a little extra work, but yeah. for me was worth it. Yes? So I did not, can, so the, the way that the Docker cache behaves is part of Docker. So I didn't do much configuration for how the actual cache itself works. So that is, that's behavior that comes as part of Docker. What I can do is I can kind of configure how I utilize the cache. So you can run some things with like the no cache flag if you, if you never want it to use the cache. But in general, how I'm utilizing the cache is I'm sorting my statements so that I can push it off as long as possible. So if I have any setup that never changes. So I have different steps that do different amounts of setup, right? So if I have a couple that never change, right? Like a label or the, the name of my actual basement, like stuff like that, I put first. And I keep as many layers possible so that Docker will recycle those layers. And then anything that I know changes every time. So for me and for Nextdoor, it's the application code. I put that as late as possible so that I did everything else that I could recycle. I did it first, and then I ended with the thing that I knew was going to change every time I rebuilt my container. So that's how I'm using the cache. But uh, if you're looking for more specifics on how Docker itself caches things, um, I'd start with the documentation on there. They actually have a really nice section on, on how the cache itself behaves. But in general, it, there are some instructions that will add a new layer, and there are some that will not. Um, so you can add those, you can chain those run statements together, which we did talk about. But Docker will use its cache until something basically tells it not to use the cache or until it gets something that's changed. So for some things, it means that it will use, the, it'll use it caches based on the instruction itself. So uh, like add x, like maybe it will, it'll, it'll use the instruction itself. But then for some of them, it's the actual contents of the file. So if I'm adding a file, it will check the checksum of that file to see if the file itself has changed. So you definitely have to look at your individual instructions to see how the cache will behave, but keep the layers as long as possible if you want to utilize the cache. And it, Docker is very aggressive caching-wise. So uh, there are some things like the Git repository thing where you tell it explicitly to stop caching. Yes? On the first pull of something, it doesn't. Yeah. Is the is the the really short answer. So the first time yeah. I pull something, there's no cache to utilize. What it where it does help me is that I don't recycle my hosts as often anymore because my containers are what's being recycled. So if I have ten Node.js services and they all have a shared base, the first time I pulled one of those services to the to the host, I have the base image, which makes the subsequent deploys for all of my following containers using that base image just a little bit faster. But the first time, there is no cache. Yes? So I've been playing a lot with deploying um, third-party applications with containers. And one of the first problems I've run into is uh, configuring the app itself after it's running. So 
You know, I wish my, my um, lead systems architect was here because he's dealing with the same issue. Um, I think, don't quote me on this, but I think there is a place for tools like Puppet and, and others in this world as well where you still deploy a container, but the first thing that you do when you run the container, you know, obviously you can run a command to start your services or whatever, um, but that command also includes uh, a directive to configure yeah. the system. Right. Yep. Or, you know, if it's a container, it probably has an API. So either some external thing to just run this script as an API call to figure it out. Yep. I feel like there's probably infinite ways to do it. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the entry point way was, I think, the, the way that we tried it. Both are good. <laughs> With the git command, um, you said you have to specify an absolute cache in your Docker build file. Is that true? Um, you don't have to specify it necessarily in the build file, but for for some Docker instructions, and this is I don't think this is the only one. Um, and they just changed things in 1.10, so I might be lying now, but I don't think I am. But for some instructions, it caches based on the instruction itself. So like pulling something that since that instruction doesn't, doesn't change, Docker will use the cache. I don't know if they fixed this yet. Hopefully they have. But for some of them, so my, for like pulling from Git, um, the instruction is always the same. I don't change my, my repository URL that I get from. So I have to tell it not to use the cache because otherwise it won't go and check. I have updates with the static URL. There's a no cache flag. Yeah, it's no cache. I yes, that is at the CLI level. Yeah. Um, go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's. Hey, it's all about ordering. Right? I think I it's mean, yeah, yeah. It's like words to live by for for a lot of stuff, right? So order the statements themselves, but also a little bit of organization goes along goes a long way because that's not even a that's not even a Docker cache thing. That's a humans sharing information thing. So and maybe I write my package list in a different order than Prakash does, but we're using the same stuff. 
how would we know? So yeah. if everyone, that's when you end up being like, okay, well, across all the engineering teams, we live in this beautiful world of everyone doing their own little teams now, and that's awesome. But what if we still occasionally had some standards, like alphabetizing a package list? I think it's really common. And if everyone alphabetizes their own package list, then we all can share cash, and that's... That, that actually, I think, is one of the reasons that we went with this option of like using scripts because the scripts are under version control. They're, they're kind of like centrally managed. And, and so we can enforce that through code review at the time that someone modifies a script. So I thought what was really cool about the, the script option, too, was that it it's not, wasn't even a new way of doing things. You could have used a lot of the same scripts that you used before you moved to the Docker containers. And you're just calling them yeah. from somewhere else now. So new learning curve-wise made it much easier on yourself because you can just call the same scripts yeah, from, it was, it was from totally a Docker container. Yeah. To begin with, we just found that as a, as a good side benefit. <laughs> I think it's a, like a nice, it's a nice thing to look at for people too that are like, ooh, it's too hard, or right. we'll all have to learn something new. It's like, well, actually, they learned half the new things the first time and took the things that they were familiar with and then used all the, like it's, it's we, not We were too just hard happy to get out of Debian packaging, let me just tell you. <laughs> that was the, <laughs> That was actually that was really funny when you said Michael. <laughs> yeah. It's awful. So there is kind of a tricky play on the Docker file to I love to tricks. Run level, run line level caching, which is to set an environment variable equal to the shell up to something like date that will constantly be changing. Oh yeah. yeah. True. Defeat the yep. Docker container's ability to cache that run. Yes. Yep. So actually I feel like next time I wanna I wanna change it around because every time I give this talk, um, people have cool stuff like that, or they have like a cool flag that no one else knew about. Um, so yeah, nope, you can definitely call out just something that changes. I think people do that a lot for file names also, that they just, they're, they always, they name it something they where they went and got the date, like, yeah. and then they hash it, and then it always changes, yeah. FPM? FPM, yeah. You can go tell that one guy that knew how you're doing <laughs> He's here. I'll go find him. But <laughs> I, I'm not sure he wants to hear about it. Yeah. He's like, oh, Debian, no. <laughs> I don't like to manually do anything, and that is because I am lazy, first and foremost. So why would I do anything myself if I could teach a computer to do it for me probably better? And then I would get more sleep, which is great for everyone. So um, how I did it, so I had all scaled at two levels, right, in, in ECS. So I would say that my first guiding principle of ECS, right, was that I did not want to debug things like kernel errors. So rather than debug that, I just kill it. So if it's out of disk space, I just kill it. And then I send its traffic somewhere else. Um, so that was point number one. Point number two is that you, compute is a resource that's shared across my pool, right? So I auto-scale at both the task level, so my service level, but I also auto-scaled at the, at the pool level, so my auto-scaling group. So they belong to just an EC2 auto-scaling group. Uh, if I look like I'm in danger of running out of something like memory or CPU, it will scale it by itself. Um, I also could have written a CloudWatch alarm, because you can write the custom ones to check to see how much disk space it did. 
Um, I ended up catching that error somewhere. Uh, I think I was using Sumo logic then. Um, so I basically shoved. Uh, I had a problem when I first started using Docker. Apparently, this is a complicated story. That I started using Docker where my con I was so bad at writing some of them that they would fail before I had any time to get any logs. Um, so I sent everything to var log messages, which is always happily running for me to catch all of my, all of my errors. So I did that, and I, I ended up looking for that error message because when it first ran out of disk space, Docker surfaces it as a kernel error, which is basically like freaking out because it doesn't have any space, but it doesn't, it's not obvious that that's what it is, and hopefully they've made the error message better. So my process for finding that out was that I, I ended up catching that error to look for it because Docker ended up warning me before my instance was warning me even though it was a non-obvious error message. So that's how I was flagging myself, because I got an earlier warning that way. But I killed them. So I, I added resources to move the pool out. But I, I was also killing them. And then the second way, in my very long and convoluted story about disk space, no one's ever going to invite me to talk anywhere, because I always end up either talking about port allocation, or disk space, <laughs> or maybe PCs. <laughs> I feel like everyone's like, oh, I was told this talk would be interesting. Um, but um, garbage collection has improved significantly, both at the orchestration layer, so Kubernetes, ECS, Mesos, whatever else, if you made your own orchestration tool. Um, it's improved a lot, but I also was running some, a third party to garbage collect because my disk space wasn't always about the running containers. It was that I had deployed so often and so, like, so frequently with non-efficient containers, that all of the extra trash from my previous containers was taking up all of my resources. So ECS will garbage collect a lot better now, so will Kubernetes. Um, but I also was running a third-party garbage collector container. So actually, really, there's an open source one from Spotify, Spotify GCC. And you ran the collector container, and I could, I could more aggressively do that. I also very aggressively rotated logs to get rid of disk space also. Since, since it was a new technology, I was creating so much logs, trying to make sure that I was running a new infrastructure efficiently, that I was being a little extra cautious. So garbage collection, don't just do the orchestration level garbage collection if it's not working for you. Do not be afraid to more aggressively garbage collect, but then also kill things when they don't have any disk space because they're useless to you now, because nothing will work on them. <laughs> also, don't. Also, fun yeah. fact: definitely don't store your MP3 collection on there. <laughs> uh, also, clean up unused files too. You like so many people. You'll you'll like you'll go on. You'll be like, I wonder why that host is out of disk space. Then you go onto it, and you're like, Did you know that you have 69 files that are all like latest.tar.gz? It's like I I bet that's a good use of space too. Um, so, so yes, don't store your MP3s. Don't store your dead files. Don't store your tar files. Don't store a random copy of your database. All those, all those, all those fun facts. Yes.
So I have a non-related answer actually to this, and that for Java and Go, there's something called multi-stage builds now that used to be in used used to just be in beta, but now now I think everyone can use it, and it's you basically build in two separate steps, or you can build like all of your Java dependencies or all your so like Prakash said that for their Go world it's really fast because ultimately all they're running is the binary. So a nice Go example is build all that stuff somewhere else and then use, even use like a scratch Docker file yeah. to run your binary. So you can do the same thing with Java, where you can do all of your Maven, Spring, Gradle stuff somewhere else where you don't care about it, and then just run so the land, results Land that into the container. Yeah. yeah, yep. So that's what I would do that was probably easier than using a Python proxy. But I've never tried using a Python proxy for that. Um, so yeah, I, have no, I have no personal recommendations. Um, Cool. Any other? Yes. Hi. We we basically kill and replace. So in a transitional way, we go through and just replace everything. And I think philosophically, <clears throat> kind of what Abby was talking about, we just sort of think of the default behavior of like something goes wrong on a container, something goes wrong on a host. We kill it. That's, that's kind of just philosophically where we're at. I so. would also say that what we didn't cover in this talk, because it was Docker image specific, is that that's something that you get at the orchestration layer in a lot of cases, right. that you're not, you're not just running your containers yourself, because that's way too much work for lazy ops, which is how I like to do things. So you, you're running it through. So an ECS is a service. Kubernetes is a pod. But it's like the group of like containers. So I'm doing updates through my service or my pod, and then uh, I connection drain at the load balancer level, which I'm not handling myself. It's just a thing that's happening. Uh, I say that I'm deploying a new version. It checks to see if it passes health checks, and if so, drains the connections off the old one and starts directing traffic to the new copy. So you, you push yep. a new deployment and then connection drain at your load balancer level. So and we also, in our load now. balancers, for at least for the, the uh, user-facing things, we have session stickiness on there just so that there's no, if you change the UI or something, someone doesn't get into a weird state where they're flipping back and forth between old and new. So. You've got, you've got to wait for it to drain, basically, before. You control. And depending on where that is happening, um, we don't have a lot of those in terms of kind of the in, in HTTP land, like user-facing land, but we certainly have some services that we run on the back end that can be running jobs that take a pretty long time, and you can't cycle out that container until that process is done. And you control that threshold at right. the load balancer level. So you can set the connection draining timeout, which is how long it will wait for that connection to wrap up gracefully before it kills it. And then you get two warnings at your load balancer level, right? You get, you get SIG term. And then it will wait to gracefully wrap up what's happening, so the process that's running, and then you get SIG kill. So it will try, though, if, you've, if, you've, if your application is handling things properly, you'll get the connection draining, but then you'll also get SIG term, which is its warning to say, please, please clean yourself up nicely. And then it won't kill it until you get SIG kill. And there's, there's a couple, just because you were asking about long running things, there's a couple of things that are a little bit weird depending on what language you're using, but if you're 
in an I.O. type of situation, sometimes the signal handlers don't get heard, uh, depending on what language you're using. So you've got to be a little bit careful there also. So. Okay. Should be fine and go. I think it's fine. I would, yeah. my, my general caveat here is that you have, if you have a behavior where you, it's a very long running job and you want to, you know that you need to have it, there's no like handle. I generally say that with containers, I write things to handle them so that if I can, I can keep track of basically what happened if my job gets killed because I don't, I don't, I don't write the containers thinking that they're going to be along that often. So I don't usually handle state in them. I don't assume that they'll be around. So make sure that you're writing. Well, same with the underlying hosts yeah. too, because the hosts themselves are ephemeral, right? They, they could go out from under you. So Make sure you can handle things like receiving the shutdown signals, receiving SIG term, receiving SIG kill. Make sure that you can handle that there's logic then. If you know that your process is really important and then it does not save state anywhere, that it has to complete itself with the same connection, make sure that you add some logic in there to account for that if that's really important to you. Yep. Okay. Oh, wait, you. Sorry. Sorry, I didn't hear that. Uh, so assuming that I can hear you, so, uh, so I didn't hear. for he's asking, he's saying that the doing it through the if I'm correct, so correct me if I'm wrong. So doing it at the task service level in ECS is a rolling update and not a blue green update. How would you handle blue green? Um, I have always done blue green or whatever colors people are using nowadays. We used to call it red black. Yeah, yeah. which is more exciting, I think. It sounds <laughs> it sounds way more drastic. Um, I always did that at the DNS level, and I would switch, but I don't, this is a personal thing, I tend to not do the blue-green ones, but I've never had an application that needed it. There's a reference architecture, I'm pretty sure, on AWS Labs about blue-green deployments that will go in. I never run those in production, so I don't want to give you a strong recommendation. There's a reference architecture, but I found that I'm as actually very happy with the with the rolling, the rolling one, so I'm not sure that I've looked too deeply we don't, into We don't do, we, we do rolling as well. We used to do, in the old world where we were spinning up new hosts, we definitely did kind of the blue-green or red-black red, black or whatever. Yeah. Um, and in that case, yeah, you, you transition traffic through load balancers or through DNS. Um, the one way I could imagine doing it if it was absolutely necessary is that you spawn a new service, right? So you, you kind of rev the service up, you set up all of your containers in the new you cut over through whatever infrastructure you're using. So, it is definitely possible, and there are definitely people that do it, that are doing it. Yeah, I'm sure there's a reference for. This. Yeah, what I would look for for recommendations is the reference architecture. But I'm positive that there is a customer out there that's written a blog post about doing blue, like the the color <laughs> deployments, basically. Um, and I'd look for some advice from someone that's running it in production, because neither yeah. Prakash and I are doing that. Um, but it is technically. I'm sure possible. it's possible. All things are possible. Um, OK, so we are going to get kicked out any second. Um, if you have any questions other than that, um, Prakash and I are both around. Yeah. So feel free, to, feel free to stop us or say hi. Um, thank you all for joining us um, and participating in informal Thanks, question time. Yay. Yay.